So let's get to my guest, okay? So this is like a very big day for me. I have somebody from like another realm, basically. I hope she, are you side. laughing? Are the you laughing? Side, yeah. yeah, the upper side. So um, this, this person uh, generously, generously offered to be on the show. And she, she lives on the Upper East Side. She came out to Bushwick, Suzanne Murphy. She's a, I don't know a lot of people. I'm, I've told her this. I don't know a lot of people like her. And I, I'm trying to think maybe the people that I think that are like her are maybe just not like her. She's like an incredibly, uh, successful in finance, in finance. Can you believe I have somebody in finance that's successful in finance in the room with me talking to me? Seriously. It's amazing. Right. But it happened. Okay. Shut up. So, um, who do you, so anyway, um, but she's obviously a, uh, brilliant woman because you can't make this happen. Her career isn't something that happens by accident, but I, I'm also very, thrilled that she's here because I think that she has um, some life experiences that are going to be really helpful for all of us, every one of you guys, all right? Um, I also might be nervous. I'm afraid of being nervous. I told her this. I'm afraid of being nervous because I have this really bad thing with authority figures. Suzanne, I told you I got fired from all the jobs, right? I got really my afraid of authority figures. You guys know this about me. So um, I really like Suzanne, and I just hope that I don't get, like, nervous or any— there's counter-transference that could be going on because, you know, she she is somebody who is often in an authority position, I would guess, certainly any room I'd be in. Um, outside of this studio, she would be in an authority position. So um, I'm just putting it out there in case in case you're suspicious of it. I'm owning it. Okay. Thank you, Suzanne. My pleasure. <laughs> um, I didn't adjust the microphone close enough to your face. Is that so, better? Yes. Okay. So uh, thank you. So anyway, I'm just going to tell you my version of Suzanne, and, and then we're going to just get right into it. But um, I'm going to introduce her. Here, here's her. Here's her. Here's one sentence, because so you know what I'm talking about. Here's one sentence from her LinkedIn. Okay, listen to this, guys. You know what? It's got this is like an art. This is like a financial expert's version of an artist statement. Suzanne Murphy is a senior marketer and investor relationship relations executive who has been very successful at raising capital for a diverse range of alternative investment products. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means, but we'll find out. We'll find out in a second. But I just want you to know that um, I have spent collectively several hours on the phone with this wonderful person human being. And um, I will tell you, un- without a doubt, hands down, her most uh, important prized role is that of a mother. Um, she has an 11-year-old daughter, Sydney B., who is an actress. And the two of them uh, just seem incredibly close. And uh Suzanne has a very broad, very, very well-traveled, world traveler person, and she's 
I know that she understands humanity and is very, very open and curious. And she's just sharing that all with this young lady who is actually a working actress, which at 11, come on, guys, what did I tell you? These are ambitious people. Um, she's also a very well-respected art collector, and she's a founding member of the Museum of Broadway. Check it out, museum of, themuseumofbroadway.com. It's a, uh, I know it's an uh, organization that's close to our heart. And also, I just want you to know, these are two other relevant things. She was very close to her father. We'll hopefully get into that. And she's also, uh, you know, an, an exemplary athlete. Um, she grew up, uh, perform- what do you call it, performing, traveling, whatever. She was part of the United States World Figure Skating Team, and she was an ice dancer. Okay, there you go. So, Suzanne. Um, I'm impressed with myself now. Yeah, oh, good. It's yeah. Much better when you when you talk about it than what I, than what I she, do. She's also really attractive, really good looking woman. I got to tell you, nicely dressed, great looking woman, no doubt about it. So, um, anyway, can you kind of like just tell us like basically what you do for a living and comment on some of the things that that I mentioned? Sure. I mean, what what does that mean? What what I read about you? So, it, it, you know, look, you're right. It's like an artist statement. It's a very fancy way of saying I raise money for investment products. Um, you know, alternative investments are hedge funds, private equity, real estate, infrastructure. Um, but, but what are the skills? Like, does that mean that you go, like I picture, I can't even understand that. Are you in meetings all day? Do you understand numbers? Like what, what, what skill, what about you? What talents and skills? I mean, you're very good at what you do. I think uh, it, you know, to be honest, it's being a good salesperson and giving, exuding confidence and giving people confidence about the investment products you're representing. Uh-huh. Um, I will tell you from my perspective, I would never try to sell or convince people to invest in something that I wouldn't invest in myself. So, you know, that narrows the field and, and you know, there, there's a lot of people out there that will try to sell anything. You know, that's so not you, how I approach it. You feel like you have a really good understanding of good investment products. Yes. And you have a track record now, obviously, to prove that. And so you, you ethics are important to you and what you're selling. Very much so. I mean, I was very fortunate enough to be involved in a firm that we built quite successfully that we sold, which created uh-huh. a liquidity event that allowed me to form my own family office. So oh. in addition to working with Lampy Conway, which is a fund that we're relaunching in the, in the uh, fixed income space, um, you know, I make a lot of investments myself and work very closely with a former client of mine who advises me, but ultimately the decisions are mine and it's a broad range of, of different products. So it, you really need to understand what you're investing in. It's so my like, perspective. so when you go to sell, I just trying to picture this, when you go to sell a product, are you in like a meeting, like a very serious meeting with people that own companies? Like, is that it? What is it? So it could be a very serious meeting with someone who owns a company. It could be just a very rich family. It could be uh, a foundation or endowment, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Harvard University, for example, has uh, a very large endowment that they invest across a wide, a wide array of investment products. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of all of the above. Mm-hmm. But the key in alternatives is the investors have to be accredited. 
So, you know, for an individual, that means a net worth of greater than $5 million mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. So do you mostly go out to sell these products or do people come to you or both? It's a combination of both. I mean, before people actually want to invest, they want to see the offices, meet the entire team, oh, yeah. kick the tires, make sure that there really is an office and there really are people there and there are the computers and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the world has certainly changed a lot since COVID and, and mm-hmm. the rise of Zoom and other technologies right. like that, which is great. Um, when I was a partner of uh, the prior firm that I mentioned that we sold, I probably traveled 250 or 300,000 miles a year. Wow. Um, you know, I'd be gone yeah. for weeks at a time. Now, becoming a mother obviously changed my ability and, and frankly, desire to to do that. And, and Zoom has been very helpful because yeah. you can get to the... 20 yard line or the 10 right. yard line by phone calls and zoom. Whereas mm-hmm. you used to go for the initial meeting because people wanted to meet you. Right. And right. when you're talking to somebody on the phone versus when you can actually look at them, it's a big, so, big difference. So can I ask you to describe your office, your office? It's at the company. You probably have an office at home. Can you, I, I just want people to understand what is possible. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that the office is anything particularly fancy. I mean, it's in a building, Midtown Manhattan. Uh, we have a floor um, on Fifth Avenue and Fifty Fourth Street. You have it like a couch in your office. I do not have couches. a couch in my office. I do. Well, we have there the the two named partners in this particular firm do have a couch in their office, which I end up sitting on a lot. But um, my office is, you know, basically a desk and a couple of screens and computers mm-hmm. and my iPad for Zoom meetings and things like that. Do you that. feel under pressure all day long when you're there or? Uh, no. I mean, it's, no. it's what I do. And, I, you know, I have to say I joined the firm not long before the pandemic. So oh. I haven't been in the office that much. Oh. You know, I've been oh. working pretty much from, from home, which right. at times, particularly when the kids were still out of school for the pandemic, could be a bit of a challenge because – uh, my apartment is structured more like a loft mm. than a typical Upper East Side apartment mm. building. So there were times when my daughter was home that there was no place to hide. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, cool. Um, something that I think, or something that really stands out to me about you is um, your confidence. And this is something I think a lot of people struggle with and a lot of women in particular. Okay, we're tired of talking about it already, but I have somebody who really genuinely has confidence or is able to use the confidence um, in a very effective way. So are you naturally confident? And let's talk about your confidence. I want to understand it. That, and um, my hypothesis is that you had a very close relationship with your dad and you're good at sports. And I want to know what how you became confident if you are really confident and if you doubt your confidence. Can you talk to us a little bit about confidence, your experience of confidence? Yeah, I think, look, most successful people suffer from what is frequently called the imposter syndrome. So I think all of us who exude confidence, you know, there's that little voice inside that says, wait, we're not really good at this or they're going to find us out. Um, And But I think oftentimes that little voice can be what drives you to be successful, to continue to prove that that little voice is wrong, that you're not an imposter, that you really are good at what you do. There's no question that the experience of being an athlete at the level that I was growing up uh, instilled that in me, right? And you had to go out and perform. You know, when it was time to do the competition, 
you had to turn it on. And I would probably say that if my ice skating coaches were here talking or reminiscing about, you know, what I was good at and what I was bad at, they would have said, you know, she didn't work as hard as she could have. Mm. She was naturally talented. And if she had worked harder, she really would have been good. But somehow I always pulled it out when it was time to perform, mm-hmm. uh, which drove them nuts. Because they, would, <laughs> they would say, if it only worked, if you could do it that well, you could have been doing it you know, twice that well. And so, um, you bet. know, there's there's definitely some of that, I think. But I think that gave me a lot of confidence, you know, having mm-hmm. had the experience of getting mm-hmm. up in front of lots of people and performing. You know, today I do a lot of speaking at conferences um, around the world um, and uh, can get up without a script and, and feel comfortable doing mm-hmm. that. And I, and I do credit my dad with a lot of that. Um, my father worked on Wall Street. He actually retired when I was still in high school, but he really raised me as his son, you know, to mm-hmm. follow in his footsteps, which mm-hmm. I ended up doing. I think I, I shared with you the story that, you know, despite the fact that I grew up in a relatively affluent um, household, when I graduated from college, my father shook my hand and kissed me on the cheek and said, call home for advice. Don't call collect and don't call for money. You know, you're leaving college better off than most people. You have no debt. You've traveled the world. I've taken you places. And now you got to go figure it out for yourself. I mean, my father mm-hmm. had worked on an ice truck when he was eight years old. So he was completely, completely self-made. Completely self-made. And how did you how did you feel when when you got to that point where you where you couldn't, you know, count where they weren't going to be supporting you? Were you were as a young person, were you really anxious then or what did you do? Like, did you like, okay, I'm going to get a job? Uh... Well, my father had had warned me of this, you know, sort of before graduation. And I had a job lined up when I graduated from college, uh, which was challenging because I graduated from college the year after the uh, 1987 crash. On oh, Street. yes, I remember. And training program slots went from, you know, Goldman Sachs might have hired 100 people the year before and they hired 12. Uh, but I had worked on Wall Street the two summers that I went mm-hmm. to college. I actually graduated in three years, so I only had two summers, which was mm-hmm. really stupid, by the way, because if you're listening out there, college is the least responsibility and the most freedom you'll ever have in your life. And I should have taken <laughs> I should have taken that extra year. I think I thought my dad was going to give me the year's tuition, which didn't happen. Uh, but, you know, I just buckled down and I chose to follow in my father's career path because he said, if you want to live the lifestyle, which I've allowed you to become accustomed to, you better get a job that funds that lifestyle. So you, you got go, a job on Wall Street right did, away. I and did. you only, you only, you have a bachelor's degree, right? You don't Correct. have a master's degree. I did not go back no to. master's degree. Look at you idiots wasting your money on art school. So oh, Look, I think there's a benefit to <laughs> business school or law school. And I thought about going back to business school. My father didn't think it was uh, necessary you know, he it was wasn't. Kind of, he, he was. He was. It ended up not being. And he was kind of smart because he said, "Look, you want to go back to school because you want to get back on the dole. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to go to business school, pay for it yourself." And I guess I didn't want to do that. But it it ended up not being a problem for the career path I chose. I mean, right. I think the best thing if I and my college boyfriend went to Harvard Business School, uh, the best thing you get out of it is the network of people that you meet. Mm-hmm. You know, much more so than In the college. education. You and, learn a lot on the job. And where did you go to school? I went to Wheaton College in mm-hmm. Norton, Massachusetts. There's mm-hmm. two Wheatons, by the way. One's in Chicago. It's a uh, Christian religious affiliated mm-hmm. seminary mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Jewish, so that was that was not me. Um, and when I went to Wheaton, it was still an all women's college. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you made some connections there. 
Some, but not a lot. You I really mean, had to do it on your I own. I really had to do it on my own. I mean, there were not a lot of women or girls that graduated from school and followed so, the same so, career path I did. So what were the early days of working? That must have been a horror. I'm sorry. Like that environment. I'm getting the, I'm getting like, I'm like, I'm overwhelmed just th- picturing it. Like, can you imagine this guy's like a really heavy, really heavy duty Wall Street office where you have to like, as a woman, as an attractive young woman, Oh my God, what was that like? Look, I was prepared for it. My mm-hmm. father sort of counseled me that working on a trading desk on Wall Street is like being in a football locker room. And if you're not up for that, it's not the right world for you. Uh, I remember him saying, check the fact that you're a woman at the door. Nobody gives a shit. Dr. Lisa gives a shit, but nobody else gives a shit. <laughs> um, you know, check the fact you're a woman at the door and conduct yourself with decorum and look, it was different, right? We've had the Me Too movement now. There's a mm-hmm. lot more checks and balances, mm-hmm. particularly at the larger firms. But back in the day, I'll be honest, I had a situation where I was working for a firm which will remain unnamed. And the we had a retreat that basically all, the whole firm was uh, you know, on this weekend retreat. And 11 o'clock at night, the CEO of the company shows up at my door in a bathrobe. And I had the presence of mind to say, I think you've got the wrong room. Oh, wow. And just, oh, wow. That's impressive. And wow. You know, and I just closed the door and I knew I wasn't going to get fired and I wasn't going to make a big deal of it. And I just went about my business. Wow. Um, I think some of what's gone on with Me Too has gone too far. Yeah. And I think it's hurting women in business. I could, I I could, I could, I could definitely agree. I mean, I I had lunch a few weeks ago with a guy who's got a very senior job at at one of the big investment banks and his office is right off the trading desk and it's got all glass. He's not allowed to have a one-on-one meeting with a woman. He has to have somebody else in the room. That's, and the, that's yeah, not good. Are, yeah, no, that's, that's got it. That's, that's not a good vibe. Although I'm glad the company is treating it that way. So when you start- Yes and no though, because these men now don't yeah, have they the- have jobs. They don't have the incentive to mentor women. Yeah, well, that's true too. That's true too. Uh, yeah, we're all working on this, this shit um, as a society- uh, and I know my listeners are really working hard on it. Good work, guys. I'm sure of you. I believe in you. Um, so were you like confident right off the bat or did you feel like you had to prove yourself? Was it heavy duty pressure in those early days or? All of the above. You know, I was insecure but exuded confidence and I just buckled down and worked really hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Wall Street, very, you know, I started out on the sell side. Now I'm what's on what's considered the buy side with investment products. Mm-hmm. I was selling equities at first and then convertible bonds um, on a Wall Street trading desk. It's a relationship business. Mm-hmm. So I sort of figured out very early on that I was young and green. And I remember calling on uh, a bank in Chicago and the guy who ran the convertible bond book at that particular bank was a pretty well-known guy in the industry. And I remember going out to see him. He said, why would I do business with you? You know, I can do business with firms that have a lot more capital than you have and with salespeople that know a lot more than you do. You're green. You're just out of school. I said, because you're going to teach me the business. Wow. You're going to be my mentor. And I'm going to work really hard for you because I'm going to learn everything I need to know to be successful from you. And that resonated and worked really, really well for me. Yeah. What think um i think your father i mean we have talked 
like I said, guys, we have spent a couple of hours total on the phone. Um, like your father sounds like a pretty special guy, right? He was amazing. And um, I'm curious to know what what about your relation? Like, what did you learn about men or dealing with men? Or what do you think? I mean, you're obviously, you know, bright or brilliant, really kind of money. It's money. It's hard. You're you've you you're a very accomplished woman. We know this. Um, but I, I have this feeling like your father really imparted some kind of, um, you know, intangible, what, what, what did he give you? What, what, what did you get? Can you explain? Cause I don't even know how to ask the question. What I'm trying to figure out is like, what about your relationship with him? helped you understand how to work with men in business, maybe. Maybe that's the question I'm trying to ask. Yeah, I mean, my parents were divorced in, when I was an early teenager, you know, 12 or 13, and I lived primarily with my dad. And so I was exposed to his experience, his work. Uh, you know, when I went to Wall Street, he said, this is, you know, if you can't do this job, no one can, because it's like a racehorse that's been bred to do this. Uh huh. And so I was very familiar with the terminology, with how Wall Street worked, you know, probably much more so than a lot of my peers, because I just grew up around it. And I grew mm -hmm. up around my father's colleagues, um, because mm -hmm. they were his friends. And, mm -hmm. you know, those were the people that were sort of around when I was growing up. Um, was he a very social man? He was a very social man. So you were actually probably surrounded by people who were having a good time and it, and enjoying each other, right? Certainly, you know, in my early years, I think as I mentioned earlier, my father retired when I was still in high oh, school. Right. Mm -hmm. He had decided that he had had enough, which, I, you know, look, I think is a very healthy uh, attitude. He had enough money that everything, yeah. he had everything he wanted to live a good life. And the things he didn't have, he didn't see a path to achieving. So mm -hmm. he said, why would I keep doing this? And mm -hmm. and listen, I mean, you know, sometimes I've I've been criticized or people have said things that, you know, I went to Wall Street for the money, but that's why you go to Wall Street. It's not, you, know, you, you are doing good in the world because you need markets that work. And a con but, you know, if you really want to do good in the world, you go work for a not-for-profit or you go work on a kibbutz or you, you know, go farm and you know, Africa, but you know, you go to wall street when you want to make money. But you're all, I also would say that whatever it takes to be good at that, you have a natural, you have a knack for it. I right? happen I, to believe that you can be, if being a natural salesperson really helps. Yeah. I mean, and you I, are born with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't you know. You can what, hone it, but yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, like the, um, just like anybody, you know, if your dad's great at fixing cars, you're probably going to be natural at fixing cars because it gets in you, your, you know, it's like uh, your mother speaks French, you're going to speak fluent French. I mean, it's, 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 it makes so much sense. Plus the genetic talent. Um, but I'm going to say that it's really Funny, or what interests me is that it seems like you really have the talent and um, you naturally went into Wall Street, but that people are critical. It feels like people are critical of it or that, like, in other words, I, my dad was an architect. I wound up doing, you know, graphic design art, 
you know what I'm saying? Like, why should it, why should it be any different for you? But except that people, do you feel like people have a negative view of Wall Street? Is that what we're talking about I, in general? I think to a large extent, yes. And if you think about the movies, right, the movie Wall Street, which is sort of the famous one, or uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, all mm-hmm. these stories. I mean, you hear the negative stories. That's what gets publicized more than the positive things that come out of the financial markets. And so I do think that there is somewhat of a view that if you graduate from college and go to Wall Street, you're selling out. Mm. Um, there's obviously been a very large push in the legal profession on Wall Street and other areas for diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, I was involved in a uh, Monday night cocktail party where we all got on Zoom and brought our cocktail and brought stories. And I and there were a lot of pretty big financial luminaries on mm-hmm. that call. I was mm-hmm. I was like the baby. How I got involved with all these Alta cockers, I don't know. But, <laughs> but I was I was on this call, and there was one guy who was head of a very prestigious law firm. Uh, and he said, look, I can't hire the diverse people that I want to hire because they're all going to work for NGOs. Mm-hmm. The people who want to come to a corporate law firm right out of school are not the candidates that I'm really looking yeah. for in that. So it's so I think it's complicated. But I do think particularly with younger folks today, there's a view that if you graduate from college or business school and you go to Wall Street, you're selling out. So the stereotype of Wall Street, I mean, you've had your own path. Does it? Do you believe the stereotype? I mean, is the stereotype true for true for you or it seems like you've had a much more sort of like it's a normal path for you and people have a different impression of wall street that's my impression for me it was a means to an end yeah Uh, you know would i have had potentially more fun running an art gallery maybe Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have afforded me the lifestyle that i've been Mm -hmm. able to achieve and that the other things that have filled out my life in such a big way. So, I mean... For me, it was a means to an end. And you wanted to make money. And we don't like to say that. You know, as I said, if I didn't want to make money, I probably wouldn't have chosen Wall Street. And, but, but it's... See, this is another thing, ladies. I mean, everybody, this person is actually admitting they want to make money. Who doesn't want to make money? And, um, and... She has done done what it takes, you know? I mean, I was in, and, and we've talked about this, but I was in a documentary that I, had I known what the filmmaker Lauren Greenfield was going to do with it, I never would have agreed to be a part of it. But because she turned my story. Into, she had her own issues. She had her own issues, and but she turned the story. She made it about money. It was supposed to be empowering women. And the project changed over the years, and she wasn't very forthcoming about it. But I have to say, in that documentary, I... I'm quoted in the trailer out of context, but then if you watch the documentary, you know, everybody, if you read the Federalist Papers, right, what the founding fathers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. our nation, the founding fathers of our nation said was that, you know, if I want to go to Wall Street and work really hard because I want to make a lot of money, that's okay. And if I also want to live on the banks of the Mississippi barefoot and fishing for my food, that's up to me. And the sacrifices I make to make the money going to Wall Street, whether it's long days, late nights, traveling, as I mentioned, waiting to have a child, which I did. That's also my choice. And that was the choice I made. Right, right. But I find it very parallel to the same way um, I feel about women who are sex workers or strippers or whatever, like especially artists um, that do that so they can have more time to do their art or whatever they want. 
and they are criticized for that. And it's really kind of the same thing. I mean, if you want to dance or do whatever you want to do to make a living and you're in control of that, you're not doing it, you're doing it clearly because most strippers, newsflash, strippers do it because they're doing it for the money. They're not trying to show off, okay? And I agree with that. I think it's the same thing. But but I think, I wonder if men are more like, they're okay if women are stripping, but they don't want to be making money. <laughs> I mean, look. It's too I, much power. That's money and power. I mean, those things are together. But I want to get to you as a mom. Sure. So um, tell me how your career so... Tell me how you, you've said that your career really, you really changed your attitude about your career when you became a mom. And tell me uh, how it changed and what you, if you thought, if you had thought beforehand it was going to change that way or what happened inside for you? What happened to you? So as we've talked about, my path to becoming a mom was a really rough and rocky one. Yes. I, I did 25 rounds of IVF, which is not only very physically taxing, it's very expensive, as you, as you know. Um, I, I joke that they're going to sing Million Dollar Baby at my daughter's butt. <laughs> and, and that's before private school. Um, so I did 25 rounds of in vitro. I ultimately needed to use a surrogate because I miscarried. And, and you know, look, I waited. I started trying to get pregnant mm-hmm. at 39. You, and you clearly wanted to be a mom. I wanted to be a mom. I had always wanted to have a child from the time I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I knew that my stepmother did not have children and it was something I think to this day she regrets. Mm. And I having lived through that and knowing that I always knew I wanted to be a mom and life just got away from me and uh, I would have done it sooner had I sort of known, mm-hmm. um, you know, for everybody listening out there too. I mean, I used to think that 40 was the magic cutoff. It's really 35. You know? <laughs> okay. So I, I tell every young woman, if you're not in a relationship in your early thirties, you know, freeze your eggs and you're very lucky to have that, uh, mm-hmm. opportunity now. The technology didn't exist when I was in my early 30s. Um, and so my daughter was ultimately carried by a surrogate and she was born severely prematurely. She came mm-hmm. at 26 weeks. Right? Mm-hmm. Pregnancy's 40 weeks. She weighed uh, two and a half pounds and was in the hospital in Tampa, Florida. Surrogacy was still illegal in New York. It's in the last year, I think it's become legal in New York. But so she was born in Tampa, Florida. And I ended up living in the hospital room with her sleeping on the couch for 69 days. And certainly the first half of that, uh, I didn't know if we didn't know if she was going to make it. We didn't know if she was going to be developmentally have problems. We didn't know if she was going to be, have cerebral palsy or autism or, you know, a lot of the things that premature babies can have. If she could go blind, I mean, there's a lot of risks. And the Mm. journey in the NICU is a very tumultuous one. And I, I think I developed such a bond with her during that time that when I, brought her back to New York and uh, was thinking about going back to work. I really, my head wasn't in it. So, so it, you hadn't really expected to feel that way. Did you think you were going to be going, you know, I thought I was going right back to work. Wow. And so like being, I was going to have a nanny and, you know, just, I was going to go back to work. but, But your experience in being a mom just really like somehow just, it, you know, again, I, I had been at the company that we sold, so I was lucky from that perspective that I had some financial security and and could take time off from my career. And I don't think that I ever thought being a mom was going to be as fulfilling as it's been. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Tell us what's good about it. You're really seeing the world through a child's eyes and the 
wonder and learning of this being that you brought into the world that starts out effectively as a blank canvas um, on some level. It's just really powerful. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how else to describe it, mm-hmm. but you know, when they're baby babies, right? They eat, sleep, poop. Yeah. But infant. they're cute. You right. Know? But then all of a sudden one day when they start talking that it's a person and it's your person and mm-hmm. you ha- feel that at least for me, I felt this tremendous sense of responsibility and wanting to give her, uh, you know, most importantly, the sense of security and being loved and, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, you know, a home environment, but mm-hmm. also then giving her every opportunity to become the person that she wants to be. I mean, I really do believe our job and, and my father taught me this. Mm-hmm. I remember we talked earlier about how he said, you've got to go out and make it um, in the world on your own. You know, I was a little resentful of that in my 20s. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, why are you asking me for the 20 bucks back that I borrowed from you last weekend? You can mm-hmm. afford the 20 bucks. But he wanted to instill in me that level of responsibility and self-confidence and knowing that I could take care of myself. And I remember being in my early 30s and my father saying, do you realize it would have been easier for me to just write checks yeah. than, than deal with your bullshit or being yeah. unhappy that yeah. I was treating you this way? But he said, my job as a parent was to make sure that if I dropped dead tomorrow and the money was all gone because I had screwed up or invested badly, that you could make it on your own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he and he really believed that. And it and it it was the best gift he ever gave me, to, mm. be, to be frank, uh, was making me independent. And um, I'm hoping to instill the same things in, in my daughter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you exp- try to expose her to as many things as you. I mean, you take her traveling a lot. She's very involved. And tell me about. Um, so she's an actress. She's mm-hmm. 11 years old, guys. Um, trying to be an actress. Or whatever. So how did that come about? And what what's what's that like as a mom? Like, and how is she, how 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 does she handle it? Is it a lot of pressure? Does she put how how can you I guess what I'm wondering about is it sounds like that that is such a it makes me nervous um, as somebody who never had, makes me nervous as had, her mom. <laughs> never had kids. It's like that just seems like it's so fraught with ups you know the the ups and downs and rejection and things going great and then things not how do you deal with all that what happens and well i think her- out of i've always said out of adversity can come tremendous opportunity right and i think that the rejection that these any actor frankly it's not just ch- child actors uh, i think builds resilience and and great life skills and i say to people that if you know her acting experience uh ends up being nothing more than getting her first chair on the debate team, it's a win mm-hmm. because she'll overcome the fear of public speaking and, and, you know, develop that level of confidence. Mm-hmm. But the rejection is also a positive thing, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to, you, we all get rejected. We get rejected by men, women, you know, uh, in relationships, we dogs. get rejected by dogs. We get My rejected dog by liked me. jobs and you, you have to learn how to bounce back from that. And so, but but going back to your question, how it came about is really that um, I started taking her to see Broadway shows when she was very young, and she loved it. Right at mm-hmm. eleven, she's seen I think thirty seven or thirty eight Broadway shows, oh and my God. Um, that's something that we really enjoy doing together. And I'm a big believer in providing experiences to kids rather than stuff. Yeah, right, because the stuff doesn't really mean that much, and the experiences can mean a tremendous amount. And 
same goes for for traveling. But as a result of this experience in in the theater, and we knew some people in the theater, and before pre pandemic, we'd always go backstage because I would oh, know wow. somebody who knew somebody. Oh, sadly, there really is no backstage now because of still COVID. They they worry, uh. but. Um, and but we met a bunch of people in the business and then the pandemic happened. And I was, I remember lying in bed the night that lockdown started and thinking about people I knew in the theater, because what do actors do when they're not working? Right. They waiter, they cater waiter, they babysit. There's none of that. Right. I thought, what are all these people that I know going to do? And I had this thought that if I could put together a camp for kids that probably weren't going to be able to go to camp that summer because of this shutdown, um, I could hire and employ a bunch of these out-of-work people. So actually, a friend, my best friend's sister is a Tony-nominated choreographer, and she runs something called the World Dance Movement, and she actually trained Andy Blankenbuehler, who's the choreographer of Hamilton. Mm. Uh, and I called my friend Jeff, and I said, do you think Mish would be interested in doing something like this? Because she knows all these people, and she knows how to do something like this, and she did. And so that summer, we employed 27 out-of-work uh actors, dancers, singers, um, and had about 70 students. Uh, We even had one little girl in Pasadena who would get up at 6 a.m. because she wanted to train um, with the level of professionals that we had. We had the guy who played the king in Hamilton. We had an acting coach from Nickelodeon. And my daughter obviously attended the camp that summer, and the acting coach from Nickelodeon called me and said, your daughter's really talented. You know, is oh. this something she might want to pursue? Oh. Um, and she has. And, That's a thumbs up. <laughs> and, yeah. Although she hasn't got a job at Nickelodeon yet, but we'll we'll see. But it, so I, I put it to her that if it's something that she wanted to do, I would support her. And it was very similar to when my father handled my ice skating career, right? He would come into my room at 5 a.m. and say, feet on the floor. And if I wasn't ready to leave when it was time to go to the rink, he would say, you're not doing this for me. And mm-hmm. he would leave. And so I do the same thing with her. Now, I there are people that she has to be responsible to. She has a manager. So when an audition comes in, you got to do it. You can mm-hmm. choose that you don't want to pursue acting anymore. But as long as you want to pursue acting, you don't get to say, I'm not in the mood today. And I think it instills a lot of responsibility in a young, mm. in a young kid. And I think it's really good for her. Yeah, yeah. And she gets but the to- minute she says, Mommy, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay, you're sure? Because you, you can't have it both ways. Right, right, right. So, because it's a, it is a job. Right. But she's obviously self-motivated. And I think that's a really huge difference between um, putting pressure on a child and a child that is trying to express themselves, right? A hundred percent. And I mean, we've been on sets where you see some of these mothers that are living vicariously through their children and pushing their children and yelling at their children on set and uh, and being nasty to the other mothers, by the way, because uh, we're just competition and we don't come at it from that perspective yeah, at all. We're, no. we're doing this because it's something she loves and wants to, so what, wants to do. Do you have a story or an example of a disappointment that she might have had and how you helped her navigate that? You know, it's it's tough on the acting side only because so much of the auditions today are self-tape and MP3s. They're not going on go-sees like they did oh, in the yeah. old days. Yeah, so self-tapes. it's kind of like you if you don't get the job, you just don't oh, hear. That's good. It is good because it sort of goes into the oh. ether and 
There's uh, not the, you didn't get it. Does she express like, I'm disappointed or does she get frustrated that, you know, we're all, she's a creative person. We're all frustrated that we're not doing better. Does she, does she express that or how does she handle, how does she, a, moves, how does an 11 year old handle that? I can't handle it at my age. I, I think she just lets it go. I think, I, again, I do think because she's not going physically and sitting in front yeah. of a casting director, I'm taking a tape with my cell phone. Right. And then I'm submitting it. Right. They don't feel the rejection in the same way. Oh, it's wow. It's harder. That's good. Because it's hard to do those self-tapes when you don't have the personal interaction with the person. Absolutely. On the other side. But um, I think it obfuscates the, the disappointment of not getting the job because it's not so obvious. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that 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 is that is a good thing. But she gets really excited when she gets a job. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, she puts a lot into it, I bet. Does she? She puts a lot into it, but I, and, and it, you know, again, it's creating a sense of responsibility. I mean, she gets a paycheck. And the first, right. first paycheck she got is, she's like, Mommy, I thought I made $500 for that job. Why is the check for, you know, $280? I said, well, the manager takes a cut. The government takes a cut. There's a mandatory amount that has to go directly to your trust that you never see. Uh, oh, the government takes a cut? But it's a good life lesson, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this is all good. I think she, I think, um, I mean, I think she's got a very rich, she's, she's having a very, very rich childhood. I mean, you know, all those experiences. And I think a lot of it is because you're open to so many things. I think a lot of parents are really afraid and they, you know, they keep their kids away from things and, um, I think, you know, I think she's, I think she's pretty damn lucky. She's very lucky. You know, I keep coming back to something that you said earlier that I just want to touch on. And you said that working was a means to an end for you. And I want to point out to everybody that, you know, who, and you work on Wall Street. Who isn't, when we work for money, guys, working for 99% of us is a means to an end. And I don't think anyone that is, in your position should be in feel any differently than like, you know, when I was an art director. Okay. I mean, you enjoyed what you do, right? You, you get satisfaction out of it. You know, it's a competitive business. And I think my background as an athlete, I like to win. So when I get someone to invest in the product I'm representing, for example, right, that feels like winning. Right. Um, So it's very satisfying, but at the end of the day, the, monetary reward is higher than a lot of other professions. Yes. But so, I mean, so what really you're, you're good at something that happens to make money. And I just, I just, I'm not ashamed of it, but no, I don't. I'm just saying like, I feel like, I feel, I feel like that you've probably heard that. I, you know, I just really um, want to point out how important it is to feel empowered and that by saying that, that it doesn't, by saying that um, it's a means to an end, it feels like whose job isn't a means to an end and because you're making money, good money, that like it's not in a different category. Okay, guys, okay. Women making money is a good thing. We want women to have 
power. I, I think it is a good thing. And I, and I think I would also say there is still this view in society. You know, people walk into my apartment and they think I divorced it or inherited it. Yeah. And I'm like, guess what, guys? This is the house that I built. Yeah. No. See, this so, is what I'm saying, which is so obnoxious. And I wanted to, um, we have 10 minutes left. So I wanted to get to this other topic, which I'm curious about from your point of view, is um, having much more modest career or whatever. But I have felt... Um, a lot of times that men are really, they really, I feel like they underestimate really smart women I've, as successful women. I think they meet them and like somebody like you who's, you know, attractive and, and, you know, they probably just think, oh, you know, they probably, they may underestimate you. And then when they find out how smart and powerful you actually are, it's threatening to them. And I was wondering if, there, there's if no you've question. had that problem and um, if you've had like men not want to date you or, or what have you gone through in that situation? I, I, I think that that's absolutely true. I think it is difficult for a lot of men. I think it was one of the issues in my marriage, you know, that mm -hmm. I and I became in the during the marriage more successful than my former husband. And I think it created a lot of tension. I think that there is still a dynamic between men and women. I think it's hard for men to be with someone who's more successful than they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that the dynamic that results from it can be difficult in a relationship. And I've certainly experienced that. Mm -hmm. um, as a result, the pool of the folks that I date is probably smaller than it otherwise would be because I just don't want to deal with those issues. Mm -hmm. When you um, are thinking about dating somebody, do you think about I mean, does it matter to you how much money they make or or what they do or like how do you what do you how do you like what do you what do you look for? I think that I want I think I look for somebody who's in a similar category to myself because I I'm happy to pay my own way, but I think when you are paying for a man, it it does it just creates a weird dynamic. Hey, it's certainly at this age. I think it's different in your twenties and thirties, but mm -hmm. in your fifties, mm -hmm. uh, there's still that traditional view of male female relationships and you know, it's how the men in the pool of people that I were dating feel about it. And I've never been interested in dating someone significantly younger than myself. So Right. In fact right. I've tended to date people who are older. My former husband was quite a bit older. Yeah, I mean, I could see that, you know, you go on a trip together and um, you're you're can easily afford certain things. I mean, that would make a difference. Have you um, dated any men who um, are, you know, clearly, you know, less successful or. Well, my ex-husband, <laughs> but you didn't start out that way. We didn't. We didn't start out that way. And I, and I think that I thought when I met him, he was more successful than it than it turned out that he was. But um, he's very smart, by the way. Huh. Um, but no, I generally have not. I've generally dated people more successful than myself because that's something, for better or for worse, that attracts me. Right, and I I, I, I grew up with a very powerful male figure in my life. My father mm -hmm. was a very big, strong personality, and we were, as you mentioned earlier, very close. And there's, you know, for better or for worse, I think I've always held men up to his standard, mm. which probably hasn't always been super healthy for me, mm. but it is what it is. Mm. 
too good. <laughs> he was a hard act to follow. Yeah, uh, you know, for my, everybody. My, my father passed away seven years ago. My stepmother has not been on a date, and I doubt she ever will. You know, there's just she, as she says, who you know. He does sound like a really. Uh, he was very special. Particular. I was very. I was very lucky. So we have five minutes left. Um, is there something like what? What do you think? Like, if you could tell women say young women what do you like you see a lot of women women who are less confident or maybe women who are smart that don't present themselves um as powerfully as they could like what would you say what would you what do you see the most that you could say women could work on i think don't be afraid of your femininity doesn't make you weak and i think there's mm -hmm. a perspective that we have that some young women have today that they have to be just like the boys. I don't think you do. I think mm -hmm. that's a negative. Um, to be confident, believe in yourself. Again, don't think of yourself as male or female. We're all working at the same job. We're all potentially as smart. Um, you know, I know you and I talked a little bit about transgender athletes, which is something that I have an, an issue with. But playing chess, an intellectual pursuit, there aren't mm -hmm. differences between men and women we shouldn't even really be bringing that into the conversation. What, what, and I respect what you're saying and I believe you for you, but mm -hmm. there are a lot of women that do get, particularly among young women, um, or I've seen it certainly many, many times in corporate environments where young women will flirt or, you know, absolutely. And, and to get ahead and get rewarded for that. What do you, what do you, what do you say about that? It's, it's not a good path to go down. I think that it's it's a slippery slope. And I don't think, I think the world is so conscious today of not allowing that stuff because the men, as we said before, are afraid of getting into trouble. It doesn't work the way it used to, but it doesn't mean you have to wear a black suit every day. Mm -hmm. You can wear a pretty dress. You can mm -hmm. curl your hair. You can be feminine and still be confident and strong and smart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, um, you don't think that, so I, I'm just trying to like put it all together. I'm a, this is a lot to think about. I'm trying to process all this. Um, I'll have to come back. But <laughs> I guess so. So like, I mean, I have seen women get ahead through flirting. I mean, I, it's actually makes me, I'm actually kind of angry and bitter about it, frankly. I, there's, <laughs> there's no question. I'm not good at it. <laughs> Listen, I, I worked with somebody years ago who ended up suing the firm over the glass ceiling and she was sleeping with our boss. Yeah. Those are the women that often complain. And why do you say it's a slippery slope? Can you explain that? Because you'll be viewed as someone who is trying to use your feminine wiles as opposed to your smarts. And ultimately that's not really respected in the business world. So you think it's, it's pretty transparent. It's totally transparent. Do you see people sleeping with their bosses still? You think not as much because I think that there's too much on the line for the bosses. Yeah, yeah. That used to, I mean, I've certainly, I've certainly. So before we, um, and uh, I really, really, I mean, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of you. Oh, you're I'm so going to use the word slumming it here. Oh, come on. I love it. I love Brooklyn. This is awesome. No, no, really. No, really. Uh, it's been invaluable like I, I knew it would be. But I just want to make sure that there that we get to talk about the things that you want us to know about, like brought your museum, the museum. And um, your daughter has an Instagram we can my keep daughter. Up with. Yep. You can follow her adventures on her Instagram, which is at Sydney B's Broadway. 
Her name is Sydney B. So S Y D N E Y B E A S B W A Y. I run the account in in full transparency, oh, so it's controlled. But you know, she, if you meet her, she might tell you my mom runs that account. Don't think it's me posting, but uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll it'll you can follow our adventures. And then, yeah, I became a founding member of a new museum um, called the Museum of Broadway. How long uh, has that museum been around? It opened last November, so we're not oh, even yeah. a year old. It's, you, yeah. Uh, Tell you know, us right off of Times Square, three floors. We have different rooms dedicated to iconic shows, whether it's the Ziegfeld Follies, Phantom, Rent, uh, the original dress from Annie, the little red dress. Wow. Lots of memorabilia. Um, the, the bottom floor is all dedicated to what goes into the making of a show. Wow. You can spend an hour or five hours there, depending on if you want to watch all the videos. Um, but, I, you know, I got involved and and when I went to the opening, I was really, really blown away by what a phenomenal job these people did. And, um, you know, it's very interactive. You know, mm-hmm. There's a Lion King room where you can put an Instagram filter with the headdress. There's wow. in the rent room, you can pick up the payphone and listen to the actors talking about their journey and their roles uh, and, and, and lots more. But mm-hmm. um, they have a fabulous website. Uh, and I really encourage anyone who has any interest in Broadway at all. Uh, we just added Leah Michelle's costume from Funny Girl. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and Ben oh, Platt's wow. costume from Parade, which was an incredibly powerful show. Uh, it's it's really, uh, it's amazing that it had never been done before. But it's, yeah. I, 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 you know, I'm biased, but I think it's a special place. Yeah, it sounds like we needed that. Yeah. Is it doing well? It sounds like a... It's starting to. It's We're getting a I've lot never of terrific... Heard about pr- it. I know a lot of people haven't heard about it. I mean, we get a lot of press. Uh, they've done a great job on social media, but uh, we we need more visitors to keep it going. But Okay, the museumofbroadway.com spelled out. All right, we got to go. Thank you so much for listening today. Check me out on Instagram, drlisalevysp, and go to the archives. I've got... 